As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds, it was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot. But the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media. But now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. We've been hearing a lot about anti-Semitism on college and university campuses across the country, including this testimony from students who spoke on Capitol Hill about their experiences. Listen. Penn's president did choose silence. The neighboring university's president swiftly denounced the incident, and yet our president cannot. Because the glorious October 7th, and you're a dirty little Jew, you deserve to die, are words said not by Hamas, but by my classmates and professors. In recent weeks, the CIA's anti-Semitic rhetoric has shifted the culture on campus to such an extreme of intolerance that 70% of MIT's Jewish students polled feel forced to hide their identities and perspectives. An Israeli student whose identity and personal info was sold online for a bounty has not left his dorm room in weeks out of fear due to death threats. For my part, I was forced to leave my study group for my doctoral exams halfway through the semester because my group members told me that the people at the Nova Music Festival deserved to die because they were partying on stolen land. Multiple times a week, on my way to class, I walk by mobs of people chanting from the river to the sea, which is a call for the destruction of the state of Israel. Most recently, we have you outnumbered and globalize the Intifada. An Intifada is an uprising, and the last two were marked by blowing up buses and restaurants. We'll talk to two of those students on this episode of this podcast. Talia Khan is an MIT graduate student. Jonathan Frieden is a Harvard Law student. We'll talk about what their experience has been like since October 7th, the anti-Semitism that they've seen, what they hope to accomplish by speaking out, and we'll also get their take on the bombshell testimony of their university presidents on Capitol Hill. Stay tuned for this can't-miss and very important interview with Talia Khan and Jonathan Frieden.
Well, Talia, Jonathan, appreciate you guys taking the time to come on the show. Just want to give our audience the chance to hear what's happening on colleges and universities across the country. So appreciate both of you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Thank you so much for having us. And appreciate your boldness. You know, Talia, let's start with you. Just take us through. So you're a grad student at MIT. Take us through what it's been like to be a a Jewish student at MIT since October 7th. Ever since October 7th, I think everybody's lives have changed. Um, You know, it's not just me, even though I'm the president of the MIT Israel Alliance. So I've been obviously doing a lot of work um, on this issue, but everybody has been so distracted and um, really caught up in everything um, emotionally and otherwise, and it's made it really hard for people to focus on school. I know several Israelis who went back to Israel, either because they felt unsafe on MIT's campus or just because they, you know, couldn't handle all of the stress on campus. So it's been a really stressful time for everybody. Jonathan, same question. You know, you're a law student at Harvard. You know, what's it been like since the October 7th terror attacks? It's been hard. I think that there's been a mix of, in the beginning, I mean, honestly, uh, as a Jewish student, um, you know, I have a lot of family and really close friends that live in Israel. Um, And so the beginning was like a mixture of, honestly, mourning for the people who were who were lost, uh, concerned for my friends that are are tied up in all this and are, and are living there. And my, my mother is living in Israel. She actually moved there uh, about oh, literally October 1st, so seven days before the attack, which is crazy. Um, so, uh, you know, concern for them and, and mourning. And then at the same time, uh, you know, I heard everything happened. Um, it, it, October 7th happened on a Jewish holiday. And so I couldn't be in touch with my mother, grandmother, who were in Israel for two days to check in for their safety. And at the same time that I was able to finally get in touch with them, I also had notifications on my phone about what had started at campus. There were over 30 student groups signed the letter blaming Israel for the murder and, and rape of their own people. Um, and so it, it was this like crazy trying to mourn, trying to you know, figure out what's going on on campus, and then also just trying to go to school. You know, like I, I have I have classes. I'm supposed to be showing up to classes. I've I've been in finals the last two weeks. Um, so it's definitely been challenging and a lot of balancing. Talia, to continue that, I mean, after a, a terror attack uh, where you know the most Jews murdered in a single day since the Holocaust, and then there's the blaming of of Israel. That's got to be you know. How do you even you know respond to that? I mean, it defies logic and and common sense and just basic humanity and morality. It's exactly how I felt. Um, So Jonathan said at Harvard, a bunch of student groups released a letter blaming Israel for what happened. And the same thing happened the day on October 8th uh, at MIT. So we had the same thing of a bunch of students essentially sending an email out to everybody saying, Israel made its bed, let them lie in it. And they don't really care about um, showing no remorse or... um, sadness about uh, for what happened to the innocent Israelis on October 7th. And even still, um, we've heard nothing from, um, you know, any of the other student groups on campus saying, you know, we support Palestine um, and we disagree with a lot of Israel, uh, Israeli politics, but uh, what happened on October 7th was terrorism and it was a tragedy that so many innocent people were killed. We never hear that. We just hear about uh, apartheid state, genocide, white co- colonial, whatever. 
Um, so it, it's really disappointing to see that. And, and it took me a few days to accept that a lot of people who I thought were my close friends um, who would be able to say, you know, what Hamas did was wrong, even though we have disagreements with Israeli politics. And when, I, when they were unable to say that, it really took me a few days to accept that that was really happening. Um, I uh, mentioned this when I spoke at the uh, congressional press conference before the hearing with all of the presidents, but I was in a study group with two Arab students and they posted some stuff that um, was a little bit concerning to me right after the attack on October 7th. And I reached out to them and I said, hey, can we you know, talk about what you posted? Um, and the conversation was really tough and I was really trying to be open-minded. But at one point, one of the people said that the people at the Nova Music Festival massacre deserved to die because they were partying on stolen land. And... I had never before had a feeling like I had in that moment of, oh my goodness, these people are justifying the murder of innocent Israelis, innocent, you know, not just Jews, just innocent people, purely because of the fact that they were on Israeli soil and, um, you know, most likely Jewish and, you know, supporting the existence of the Jewish state. So yeah, it it took me a, a lot of time to accept that anti-Semitism, while I didn't notice it before, was clearly just hidden one layer under. um, And now it's come out in full force. I think that things in the beginning went very quickly from, you know, just being about Israel and that it's all their fault to things really actually becoming straight up anti-Semitic. And in a way that is worrisome. So like, as an example, I mean, this is just, this is literally two days ago. There was a menorah lighting uh, on campus um, and a professor was speaking and talking about his family that survived the Holocaust. And someone came, walked up in the middle of it and started yelling at them that the Holocaust is a hoax in Harvard Yard. This was two days ago. So, right. So like things went from being against Israel to clearly anti-Semitic and not even rational. Um, I I would also add that, I mean, there's also the question of like, what is against Israel and then discrimination within the university itself uh, and the whole free speech versus action issue, um, which I think is something that really should be spoken about uh, a lot more. Well, and Jonathan, to follow up on that, as a law student, you know, when you hear some of these university presidents, and, and first of all, we had three of them that refused to say if genocide was in violation of uh, the school's policy. When they try to hedge on, oh, it's it's free speech, how do you you know differentiate between the two? What's your response to that? Yeah. So thank you so much for asking that, because I think that with everything that's going on in the news right now, that is what is the most misunderstood issue. So what what's going on with that is the universities are, are looking to constitutional First Amendment law. And according to the Constitution, if you are in a public space, so that's like completely public space, you are allowed to say hateful, disgusting things, as long as it doesn't turn into conduct and as long as it's not 
technically harassment, so it's not like targeted at an individual. So people could literally walk around saying hate speech, and that's legal in, in the United States under the First Amendment. What these institutions are deciding to do, these institutions are private are, are private universities. So they do not need to be abiding by those First Amendment laws. They could, they could create their own codes of conduct that are more restrictive if they wanted to. Um, but what they've decided to do is that they believe that the First Amendment laws are actually what's ideal um, and what should apply to the university. Now, whether or not that's a good idea, is actually a, a really, really important question, right? So meaning like, do we want there to be complete free speech on campus with no censorship by the institution? People could say things even that others find hateful and there's no way to stop that. Maybe that's a good idea, right? There's no censorship, that could be good. On the other hand, it could also potentially be lead to hateful comments, detract from education, right? Like that, that's a really good question. And the fact that the university is coming out on the full free speech side in theory, is a fair argument to have. The issue is, is that, number one, there's a double standard, right? So there's many examples where there has not been full free speech on campus. Um, I, I mean, the, the FIRE report, which came out and had Harvard ranked last and, and second last on free speech, uh, is unfortunate, but potentially speaks for itself. Um, there were a bunch of Harvard students that had, that, that admitted students that had their admissions retract retracted uh, for putting like racist memes online, that speech and the university retracted their admissions. There's a lot of examples that show that sometimes the university does act based on action, based on just speech. The second issue is that what's happening on campus is not only speech, there's also action. So like when the presidents were testifying on Congress, they didn't talk about the fact that one student was a Jewish student was surrounded and they were not only chanting shame in his face, but they restricted his movement. And you hear him on camera saying, don't touch me. Right. They didn't talk about the fact of posters being ripped down of stickers being put on property that didn't belong to them. Those aren't free speech issues, right? Those are action issues. And that's the thing is it's, you know, listening to some of the things you guys were talking about at the press conference. I mean, this isn't just speech. I mean, you're telling you, you were talking about how, 70% of MIT's Jewish students who were polled, they felt like they had to hide their identities and their perspectives because they were in fear of retribution. You had talked about how one student's identity was sold for a bounty on online and who was in hiding. I mean, that is crossing a boundary where people do not feel safe. Absolutely. And actually, um, thankfully, that student is back in Israel now. Um, he felt so unsafe on MIT's campus that he went to his home in Israel. To a war zone, um, he felt he, safer. He went back to a war zone where, yeah, exactly. He felt safer in a war zone than he did um, in an MIT dorm. Um, and I guess I totally want to echo exactly what Jonathan, how Jonathan just responded to your question. Um, I am very pro-free speech and um, I agree that on, on the face of it, um, perhaps some of their answers could be... Uh, seen as, you know, a good thing in pro-free speech, et cetera, but it's the double standard that we're seeing um, where uh, if the question had been asked is calling for the genocide of insert other minority group here, you know, black and brown people, Asian people, something like that, God forbid, um, the answer would not have been the same. And we all know that. Um, I will give you an example um, on that happened to me. So a few days after October 7th, uh, maybe three days after, I put up 
some large Israeli flags. I have a, a some in my office on campus. I have a giant window that faces Massachusetts Avenue, and I put up some giant Israeli flags um, and two banners. One that said "We stand with Israel," and the other that said "No excuse for terror." And six days after I put these up, and by the way, um, I am a grad student now, uh, but I did undergrad at MIT. So this is my eighth year here, um, and I'm familiar with the culture. There is a culture of putting up banners, and we have a hacking culture, which means like, um, you know, inclu- which includes things like putting up banners and um, uh, expressing your free speech. Um, so I put these flags and banners up, and six days after, MIT put out a brand new rule, the first change to the rule on postering since 2007, uh, banning flags and large banners. And after that, yeah, it's it's wild. Um, and after that, I got uh, calls from you know my professor, department head, other professors saying we were told by administration to tell you to take these down. So administration didn't even contact me themselves. Um, I said if they want to have me take these down, they should email me. They would never put this in writing, of course. Um, and finally, on one Friday night um, during Shabbat, actually. I was told that uh, facilities people were going to come to my office to take my flags and banners down. So on Shabbat, um, I went back to my office alone at night, um, and three men from MIT facilities had been sent there to essentially intimidate me into taking my flags down. And um, it was very mob mafia esque. Um, you know, it, you know, we don't know what's going to happen if you don't take them down. I don't know if they'll be there tomorrow. This kind of thing. And and. You know, it's only happened because it was pro-Israel. And and actually, an alum from MIT from 20 years ago reached out to me recently and said that the same exact thing happened to him when he put an Israeli flag up on his MIT dorm um, 20 years ago. They started making up new rules saying that he had to put his flag down, even though there were flags on other dorms. Um, so MIT at least has a history of silencing uh, pro-Israel speech. And this double standard that we're seeing um, is really kind of what makes it clear that um, it's disingenuous uh, what they're saying about free speech. You know, that really underscores the point that Jonathan was making, where it's like, okay, sure, if this was, you know, universally applied and if it was even handed, then, you know, we would buy into it. But, you know, every university across the country and college campus, they have a code of conduct, right? And so there's already these standards that they apply, but they're they're being unequally applied to the point you're both making. You know, and Jonathan, I know you had talked about uh, an incident where, you know, there was a mob of something like 200 people, which would also make a student feel unsafe on campus. You know, Jonathan, I wanted to ask you as well about, you know, your president specifically, uh, Claudine Gay, she's also been, you know, credibly accused of plagiarism, uh, yet she remains in her position. What are your thoughts on just that whole scandal and the fact that she's not been asked to to step down? It's funny. Like, I I think that I'm still trying to fully formulate my thoughts on that. Regarding specifically the plagiarism, I have no idea as opposed to anyone else. I think that that, you know, seemingly Harvard said that there's some sort of independent review um, whatever comes of that comes of that. I can't speak to that more than anyone else. And I wouldn't want to share something that I don't know is true. Um, in terms of the fact that she is still, still employed as a president and wasn't asked to step down. Um, listen, I'm not surprised. I mean, over 700 Harvard faculty members signed onto a letter 
uh, asking for her to not be pushed to, to resign. Um, and so I'm not surprised that that happened. In terms of whether or not that's a good thing, um, I don't know. And I, I know what I'm going to say now might surprise some people, but like, I, I don't think she's an evil, hateful person. Um, I, I just disagree with how things were, were handled. Um, and honestly, for myself, I want Jewish people and Jewish students to be protected. And I don't really care whether that's with President Gay as the president, whether that's without her as the president. Like, I think Harvard needs to, to, first of all, just start enforcing their own policies and do an internal review to figure out the systemic issues that are at hand. And that's just what needs to happen. And regardless of who the president is, there needs to be, there needs to be change. Um, we saw that, like, I mean, that they instituted some sort of anti-Semitism advisory board uh, like a month ago, and seemingly that's a sham. The rabbi that was on it already stepped down because it was a sham. They weren't meeting with, uh, they, I, I mean, I asked to meet with them for a month. They wouldn't respond to my emails. It was unclear if they had any executive power. So, like, we're just at the point where we want to see change. I, I think that after the campus hearings and the response, we're going to see things see things start protecting Jewish students a, a, a little bit more. Um, but who should be the leader at the helm? Uh, I think that that's a little bit beyond beyond my beyond my pay grade. <laughs> I mean, I respect that response, and, and I also think if there's changes, it's also in part to you guys being brave enough to stand up and to not be afraid to call out, you know, what is happening. Let's take a quick commercial break. More with Talia Khan and Jonathan Frieden on the other side. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. But the six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very of all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. <laughs> like, what did we do? It's so slow. Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zikazoo is moderated by real live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. Oh, <laughs> I especially love the dance challenges. So much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. All oh, my friends love it. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Uh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Talia, I, I'm always curious because, you know, we've had a lot of these conversations. You know, I, I work for Fox News. I'm on air quite frequently. And there's always a conversation between are these people who are out in the streets, you know, calling for genocide, are, are they just ignorant 
or are they intentional with the words that they are using? I don't know if I could begin to go into the minds of these hateful people. I, I have no idea, um, you know, where their motivations come from. Um, but as Jonathan said, um, at least on campus, what we've seen is that these sentiments are kind of embedded in, um, you know, it's in all of these liberal institutions, these universities, um, it's somehow become part of, I guess, the standard of uh, what, you know, a young person at a liberal institution should believe um, is to be anti-Israel and um, anti, uh, you know, in pro-Palestine, whatever that means. Um, apparently supporting Hamas to them is pro-Palestine, even though I would say that anti-Hamas is the most pro-Palestine you can be. Um, yeah, I think it's it's just this kind of morphing of anti-Semitism. And um, of course, there's been anti-Semitism for thousands of years. And, and it morphs and it changes and it hides itself in different ways. It used to be um, you know, where's the money, the Rothschilds? And, um, you know, now it's, oh, there's colonial apartheid, white supremacy suppression. Um, so it's really the same story that we've been seeing for thousands of years, um, just somehow morphed to be more palatable to an educate, quote unquote, educated um group of people. I mean, uh, uh, an example is uh, we just got an email two days ago from the program director of the women and gender studies program at MIT. Um, so during our January term, they're going to be hosting a book club um, with a book called, uh, they called me a lioness by Ahed Tamimi. And uh, they're kind of publicizing this as uh, him, he's a Palestinian activist and poor him. And he was recently detained for a social media post calling to slaughter settlers and wrote, quote, you'll say what Hitler did to you was a joke. We'll drink your blood and eat your skulls. Um, so, yes. Um, and so they're just kind of warping narratives to let them fit this kind of academic, um, woke, uh, I guess, uh, viewpoint. Uh, it, but I could never understand it, of course. Jonathan, to tell you his point, you know, why has anti-Semitism almost been normalized or, or mainstream to a degree among, you know, these academia or, you know, some these more mainstream people? You know, how do you think that happened? Why is this happening? What do you attribute it to? Yeah, um, I mean, there are so, so, so many possible reasons for why it's specifically why we're really seeing anti-Semitism like show its face the most on college campuses um, and like why that's kind of become a hub. Uh, I know that there's, there are conversations about around where the money is coming from. There's conversations around, uh, you know, the, 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 the way that the education system has been moving in the last couple of years away from academic integrity and things like that. It, it's hard. It's hard to say definitively. Um, but one thing that I, I think is important to add, which is just like a really interesting point, and honestly, I don't even know what to make of it, is that when universities have become a hotbed of anti-Semitism, what's happened is a lot, some of the anti-Semitism that's happening here is right near campus, but isn't even on campus. It's like people are flocking to the universities and to those areas to spread hate. So I'll just give you like two examples. 
one of my uh, really good friends here was walking by. She's Israeli and now lives in America and is doing uh, incredible work, uh, psychology work with children. Um, and was walking by a rally and an anti-Israel um, pro-Palestinian rally. And she asked them, you know, like, she was just like, she was like emotional. She said, like, how can you guys support this? She said, my cousin was just in the Nova Music Festival and she was just killed by a rocket. Like, how can you be supporting this? And the person looked at her, smiled and said, F your cousin. That oh, oh, a week or two later, my wife and that same person were in a similar area in Harvard Square, uh, right across the street from campus. Um, and someone literally walked over to them and said, Hitler was right. Uh, and we should exterminate all Jewish men, women, and children. And so what's really, in, first of all, disgusting, absolutely disgusting. That's on camera, by the way. Like this isn't, I'm not making things up. You can look it up on Instagram. Um, but what's interesting about that is like, that was right near campus but not even on campus. So it's like, for some reason, people are kind of flocking uh, to the campus area to, to spread this hate. Um, and one thing that I just want to share that I, that I know is a little bit different, um, I, I just, one of my biggest concerns, honestly, of the, of the last couple of weeks is that anti-Semitism and hatred becomes a partisan issue. I don't know why that's happening, um, but I'm noticing that people on, on different sides of the aisle are, are treating this issue very differently, at least some of them, not everyone. Um, I, I, 100% there are, there are people uh, who are more liberal that are taking this very seriously as well. But my concern and like the thing that I'm really worried about is that the hatred of my people becomes a partisan issue. And that would be absolutely terrible. I think that's a really good point. Obviously, it you know it, it shouldn't be. I, I think we are seeing some divides in the parties on you know what's happening, and depending on how prolonged the war is, you know that division could increase. Right? It feels too in just hearing you know what you guys are talking about is you know if I put myself in you know your shoes, I, I wouldn't feel safe. You know, and and that's just a, a tragedy, and that shouldn't be what's happening at MIT or Harvard or any of these other places. You know, I just want to give you guys time to just say whatever else is on your mind before we close out. You know, Talia, what else do you want to get across in this conversation? You know, what do you want people to know? One thing that was incredibly disappointing for me uh, after the congressional hearing with the three university presidents was that MIT was the only university that didn't even try to apologize for what happened at the testimony. Um, didn't, you know, clarify that calling for genocide is wrong, etc. Nothing like that. And instead, what we got was a letter from the executive board of the MIT Corporation saying that they give full support to President Kornbluth, they support her testimony completely, and that she's doing a, quote, excellent job combating anti-Semitism on campus. And the fact that we are just being gaslighted by not only senior administration, but also the corporation. And then, you know, even just a few days ago, we got another letter from um, several senior faculty members, uh, again, fully supporting President Kornbluth, saying that everything she's doing is great. And um, it's just so disappointing. Um, we're so tired of screaming at the top of our lungs that we don't feel safe. We're tired of reporting, I, uh, you know, 
um, we have this institute for Institute Discrimination and Harassment Resources Office and IDHR. And last year, 240 cases were reported to them. In the past month, 400 cases were reported to them. And we haven't seen any clear discipline uh, against you know, any of the complaints that I filed and any, any of the complaints that the people, the other people in the MIT Israel Alliance, uh, the club that I'm a part of, uh, have filed. And it's so disappointing to see that because they don't want to believe that this is happening on campus, they seem to be trying to manifest, um, you know, a state of uh, being on campus that everything is all right and, and none of this is actually happening and everybody's fully safe and content. Um, but that's just not true. And uh, while I'm ex so exhausted from screaming and I want to just get back to studying in my classes, we all just want to get back to our normal lives. Um, we can't because we this has become existential for us. And I think when we're seeing um, the Newsweek polling recently about how I think it was a fourth of young people think that uh, facts about the Holocaust were exaggerated um, and other uh, polling like that about uh, the next generation kind of supporting Hamas and um, allying themselves or empathizing with these terrorists, uh, we know that it's only going to get worse. So if MIT and other universities try to just, oh, shush, shush, everything's okay, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, they say they're trying to turn down the temperature. If they keep trying to do that, it's just going to be so much worse in five, 10 years when these, this next generation of TikTok corrupted students comes onto campus. And that's what I'm really afraid of. Um, right now, we need to be setting a precedent on what is right and what is wrong. And there are people who would disagree with me, but there are, you know, moral absolutes um, in this world. Um, and, you know, those views I have that are shaped by my Judaism um, and, you know, my religious identity. Uh, but, you know, calling for the genocide of Jews and calling for an intifada, these things are wrong. Um, there's no excuses for these things. Um, and I think that we need to make that clear. Uh, and, and administration needs to make that clear. I think that at this point, I don't believe that administrations should be commenting on political issues in general, but unfortunately they have been. And so in, like, to comment on things uh, you know, uh, about Ukraine, Black Lives Matter, all of these other things that we got emails about in the past few years, um, and not to comment on this, it's just... You know, you either have to decide as an administration if you're going to comment or not, and they've chosen that they're going to comment. So um, they need to be strong, strong about um, how they're responding to this. Makes a lot of sense. A well said. Quick break. Stay with us. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health, but by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app.
Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Jonathan, same thing. I just want to give you the space and the opportunity to say whatever else is on your mind and what you want people to take away. Thank you so much. And and I think that this is a beautiful part of podcasting, that there's, that there's time to get into some of the more nuanced uh, issues. Um, number one is, I just know that this is just like a discomfort that I want to share that I'm sure some, some of my other Jewish friends on campus have, which is that a lot of us are sharing that you know, the safety issues and saying things like we don't feel safe, but at the same time, trying to balance that with being with the fact that like, I am strong and like, we are strong and we're going to be proud of our identity and we're not going to step down uh, or silence ourselves in the face of potentially being concerned. Um, And I'm not going to hide my identity or who I am. Um, And I think that that's, like that balance is 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 like a really interesting one, um, and something that I've been thinking about uh, a lot. Um, I also do want to highlight that there are a lot of students on campus that are in very supportive, whether or not they do agree or disagree with us. Um, the, especially the Christian community on campus has been unbelievable. They held a whole dinner for a bunch of Jewish students, had kosher food of just like silence and showing support. And I even had just to show like, this is not a, you know, this isn't like us against other religions. A lot of my Muslim friends even reached out and were like, Hey, how are you doing? Um, And I think that that's a really beautiful thing and something that I would love to see more of people trying to connect um, throughout all the challenges that are going on and to not just be completely isolating each other um, and there definitely are people on campus right now that will not speak to you. I mean, like I, we had people come up to us. I was with a bunch of Jews uh, at a table on like October 10th, like literally three days later. And a bunch of people came up to us and we're just like, no babies were killed. You can't prove it. And we're like, what is wrong with you? Like, you can't talk to people like that. But there are a lot of people that have shown support and that we can talk to. Um, and I think that building those bridges is is really, really important. It, to just wrap it up... Um, and, and for the university, I hope that they can work with us. Um, listen, they, they haven't for the last 
two plus months. Uh, I mean, there have been emails that I've sent that are just like highlighting systemic issues, highlighting specific policies that were violated that were just not enforced. Um, I sent an email to the like everyone in leadership of the university about like a, a little over a month ago with eight policy violations. For each one, I had uh, a layout of what happened. I then provided photo and video evidence of every single one of them. And then screenshots, this is the lawyer in me, and then screenshots of the code of conduct that were explicitly violated with highlights. And nothing happened. And some of them were so obvious. I mean, you pointed out before, and this is what I spoke about in Congress, of the 200 people that marched through the law school building, that uh, many of whom were not even, not Harvard's law students, weren't even Harvard affiliates. I was in a meeting with a high-profile speaker in the hallway, then that got completely shut down, a bunch of classes stopped um, and were completely disrupted. It was terrifying. People, by the way, thought that there was like an active shooter, people were hiding. It was actually like a pretty scary thing. Um, it explicitly says that pro- in, our, in our code of conduct that protests and handbook on, on policies that protests that stop class are against policy. And it even makes a recommendation for what the administrative board should do, which is to, which would officially uh, end up on their transcript and nothing has happened. We haven't even received an email about it. Um, and so I think like actually clarifying your policies and enforcing them communicating about those policies and communicating about what's going on on campus to people, the safety concerns, the, the mental health uh, opportunities. They're telling us that there's mental health opportunities, but if we want to try to get an appointment, there's a three-week waiting, li- waiting list. So that's not really effective. So communicating effectively, bringing us into the loop, clarifying your policies, enforcing your policies, um, and trying to regain this culture on campus that should be about empathy and education instead of hate and stopping classes. I would love to echo quickly what Jonathan just said. You know, there. I was talking about this with somebody earlier today about the fact that these kind of extreme people with extreme viewpoints have always been on our campus. Um, but the difference is there was kind of a level of, there was an understanding that certain things are not tolerated on MIT's campus, that we expect a level of decency and kindness and empathy towards other people. And that's kind of the MIT that I came to know in the past eight years of, we all have disagreements, but we listen to each other, we talk to each other, we collaborate with each other. MIT is a very collaborative institution, uh, working on our, you know, our scientific problems, et cetera. Um, And I want to echo what Jonathan said. It's, um, we need all of these institutions to enforce their own policies. We've also, you know, sent screenshots of the handbook to MIT administration and they've done nothing. Um, So we need them to enforce their own policies because all we want is to reestablish kind of an environment where people feel comfortable studying, where people don't feel fear uh, working on group projects with people who want to kill them or who vocally say they're calling for the death of their family members. Um, And um, I think we, even with all of this, as Jonathan said, I and, and others are still holding out hope that the MIT administration will just finally understand and 
work with us. Uh, that's what we've been trying to do the whole time. We've been trying to reach out to them human to human, um, not lawyer to lawyer, as they've been kind of pushing back with. Um, but yeah, I, I think we are just so devastated that people have taken this so personally, that people are so angry. Um, and people think that just because you're pro-Israel, you hate um you know, certain groups of people that you hate Palestinians, you hate Muslims. Um, I mentioned this in the congressional press conference. My father is Muslim. My father's from Afghanistan. Half of my family is um, Muslim practicing. Um, you know, I have cousins who cover their hair, wear hijabs. Um, my half sister, her family is Hindu. And my half brother, his family is Christian. Um, and we disagree about a lot of things, but we listen to each other. We talk to each other. And that's the environment that I grew up in at my ho- in, in my home. And that's the environment that I thought that I was at at MIT. And it's really disappointing to see now that that's not the case. And I would just really encourage the MIT to promote more of that, uh, to promote more of understanding and empathy and compassion with people of all different backgrounds. I mean, I think at a base level, you know, you would hope that society as a whole could agree on calling for the genocide of insert any group of people is is wrong. But yet here we are. Talia Khan and, and Jonathan Frieden, this has been uh, a really enlightening conversation. I truly appreciate your insight. And I just have so much respect for what you guys are doing because, you know, I, I know that when you put yourself out there, you know, you're going to face incoming as a result. So I just really appreciate you guys being brave and so eloquently breaking this issue down for my audience. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us and for, for giving us a voice uh, during a time when speech is being stifled. That was Jonathan Frieden, a Harvard Law student, and Talia Khan, MIT graduate student. I really appreciate them taking the time. The whole point of this episode was just to give them the space and time to really talk about their experiences and share that with you and everyone else. I think it's an important conversation and important to just hear them in their own words. So I really appreciate them taking the time to come on the show. And I appreciate you guys at home for listening every Monday and Thursday, but you can listen throughout the week. I want to thank John Cassio, my producer, for putting the show together. Until next time. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. 
Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today.